Hi, I'm Jason Nichols, and I'm on the left. And I'm Vince Colonnese, and I'm on the right. And, and if, if we, we can't, can't find, find common, common ground, ground in this world, world today, today, then we're all just travelers. Passing each other in an international airport. And this great American experiment will be relegated to the trash bin of history. So let's come together to debate without yelling. And, and let's, let's save, save this, this nation. nation. Things get bananas with Build Back Better and the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. Well, it's not done yet. This is Vincent Jason, Save the Nation. This man clearly will not stop talking. In America, there's a thing about both white vigilantism and white tears. They have to participate in their own health. You can't expect just vaccines and pills or whatever else they have to do the job. Vincent Jason Save the Nation is brought to you by Gold Co. Hey guys, welcome to Vincent Jason Save the Nation. I'm Dr. Jason Nichols. I'm with my colleague and good friend, Vince Colonnese. And there's a lot going on, of course, dealing with Build Back Better. A uh, lot went on over the last 24 hours. Vince, let them know. Yeah, so uh, we're speaking this morning uh, just after the House of Representatives passed the $1.7 trillion Build Back Better uh, social spending package that Joe Biden has been pushing. Uh, this is after months of negotiations, a lot of jockeying between Democrats and, and, and the very subdivisions of those Democrats. Uh, and now it gets out of the House where, and it's on its way to the United States Senate, where the future, it's not clear. I mean, there's quite a few people who think that it's not going to even make it through the Senate uh, via this reconciliation process. But either way, this part is over. Now, how did we get here? Well, overnight, Kevin McCarthy, the minority leader for the House of Representatives, represents the Republicans, of course, uh, spoke using a privilege that only the leaders of each party, as well as the Speaker of the House, have, which is that they can speak for unlimited time during something called magic minutes. It's kind of the equivalent of the filibuster over in the Senate. So Kevin McCarthy, using that privilege that only he can use within the Republican Party, he spoke for eight and a half hours straight overnight, condemning Biden's Build Back Better legislation. Now, as he did that, Democrats, well, they took to social media to express, express their frustration that Kevin McCarthy was going on and on and on and on and on and on. Here's what it looked like on AOC's live stream as she was sitting next to Cosmo Kramer lookalike Jamie Raskin from the state oh. of Maryland. Take a look. More upset about climate action and universal pre-K and Medicare covering hearing than he is about his own guy, Gosar, creating yeah. a violent homicidal cartoon that he put uh, up on the internet and refused to take down yep. for you. Yep. And they're really upset because we censured him for it yes, yesterday. They are. They are and I heard you made a beautiful speech yesterday, oh, AOC, and I missed it, but I'm gonna check it out tonight after I hear this, one of the greatest speeches in American history. I mean, not since the Gettysburg Address has America witnessed a speech like this. I mean, the Gettysburg Address was elegant and brief. So. Yes. <laughs> you, you, like... you could fit 100 and maybe 20 Gettysburg addresses in what he has done already. Let's look at, let's re-examine this peanut gallery right over here. Okay, ready? All right, this right here, Mike Pence's brother, also a member of Congress. I mean, you know, whatever. Okay, here we have Representative Clyde, who said that January 6th was a collection of tourists. Um, meanwhile, I heard that he was crying like a little baby on the day that it was happening. Um, 
And I mean, look, look I mean, look at all these folks. Again, stunning diversity in in the House Don't Republican Caucus. Yeah, I listen. And then, of course, we have their leader. So, uh, you know, I, I mean. Well, but how are you? Are you moved by the fact that Vice President Pence's brother is sitting next to a group of people who defend the insurrectionists who were chanting "Hang Mike Pence"? They really. I mean, you have Ted Cruz that the president humiliates his family, and he goes to bat for him, and then you have this man, you're right, sitting next to people who were encouraging folks who literally wanted to harm his own family. I don't understand it. I don't understand it. But I mean, hey. Um, anywho, this man clearly will not stop talking, but has nothing to say. All right, AOC's live stream. All righty. Yeah, you know, um, I thought it was interesting. Uh, Jamie Raskin, who's who's from my state, he's not my representative, but but he's from my state. Uh, and AOC uh, made some clear observations about about the uh, the Republicans and and of course uh, Mr. McCarthy and and his long speech uh, that wasn't saying a whole lot and wasn't going to stop the process. As we see that Build Back Better at least has made it through the House, and we'll see where it goes with the Senate. That's going to be dependent upon some conservative Democrats, like, uh, you know, of course, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. So we'll see where it goes, but he wasn't going to stop this from going forward. Uh, this was just kind of bluster, uh, you know, delaying the inevitable. And, and, you know, I hope he had a bucket there. So just a little history about the, uh, the filibuster actually on the Senate side. I believe it was Strom Thurmond who has the record for the longest filibuster, if I'm not mistaken. Hmm. And there's a rule um, that was created where you have to have one foot on the Senate floor. So he had one foot on the Senate floor and he was behind a curtain. They put up a curtain and he was peeing in a bucket at the same time so that he could continue to speak and continue to filibuster. So just a little interesting filibuster history there. 24 hours and 18 minutes, Strom Thurmond. Right. <laughs> Unbelievable. And I, I'm surprised he didn't have to poop. Uh, I don't know what he, you know, what he ate or didn't eat, you know, in order to, to keep his bowels controlled. Or maybe, maybe he did. Uh -huh. <laughs> you know, maybe he did poop. Uh, who knows? But he was able to uh, go for, for 24 hours and he probably actually stopped something. Whereas Kevin McCarthy was unsuccessful, did not actually stop the legislation from going forward into the Senate. Uh, so congratulations to him for proving that he could stand up for eight hours straight. <laughs> I mean, you're right. It is a political gesture. It's meant to be a sign, I think, to Republicans. Really, it was, it was a message to Republican voters nationwide that uh, Kevin McCarthy wasn't going to take this lying down, not going to let this go, go down without a fight. Um, and so he uses whatever sort of time he has left to delay this thing. He goes eight and a half hours. And uh, as, as it stands, apparently that now sets the record for uh, one of these leaders using the quote magic minutes uh, in order to use the House's version of the filibuster. 
the previous record holder, Nancy Pelosi. So you can see why uh, uh, Kevin McCarthy may hey, wanted to push back. Nancy Pelosi standing up for eight hours. She's 81 years old. I don't know when this happened, but she's 81 years old and not having to pee for eight straight hours at 81 is a real achievement. So shout yes. out to Nancy D'Alessandro uh pelosi look at you delisandra that's awesome hey i'm i'm, uh, I'm a baltimore guy you know yeah, we, that's we right know the, we know the delisandro family the delisandra her father the former mayor of baltimore absolutely uh and so uh, yeah i guess I, i'm gonna go ahead and guess just just knowing the women in my life that uh, she probably did that in flats if she did it in high heels she deserves <laughs> to still be considered the record holder. Absolutely. Uh, so <laughs> there's there's that. Um, but yes, you're right. It's a political gesture uh, to basically say, hey, look, this this bill is not gonna be good for the country. And, uh, and I'm gonna register my opposition here uh, to it. And he spent eight and a half hours uh, exploring every contour of this thing apparently uh, in order to make that, that point. Uh, and you're right. A lot of this is just not gonna survive in the Senate. One of the reasons, like for instance, sort of the, the sweeping immigration components to this bill, unlikely to survive. The Senate parliamentarian already ruling multiple times uh, that any amnesty provisions, anything that changes immigration law, unlikely to survive in the United States Senate. Uh, and that's because this is a budget bill. This is a reconciliation package, and it's only supposed to adjust things on a budgetary basis and not actually address changes in policy in the United States. Um, so we will see, but as of this morning, it looks unlikely to make its way through the Senate, but anything can happen uh, in the United States Congress. All right, let's take a look at uh, some other of these, some uh, other clips that uh, caught our attention this week. Um, here's one. This one's gotten a lot of chatter, and I'm very interested in hearing uh, your reaction to it, uh, Dr. Jason Nichols. Joy Reid uh, hosts an MSNBC show, and she reacted to the fact that uh, during the Rittenhouse trial, Kyle Rittenhouse cried while he was on the stand. He was under question from uh, his own attorney, the defense attorney, uh, under direct questioning, sort of reliving the uh, the moment that he ended up firing upon Joseph Rosenbaum, who had been pursuing him on the street in Kenosha uh, in that that night in August um, of last year, and he began he began crying. He was so overcome with emotion that he couldn't keep speaking. Here's how Joy Reid characterized that event. So it's Kyle Rittenhouse trial. It reminded a lot of people of something. Something, I just can't remember what it was. Oh, the Brett Kavanaugh hearings, in which Brett Kavanaugh, who had been accused by a high school friend of committing sexual abuse of her, cried his way through the hearings to make him a permanent member and associate justice of the United States Supreme Court. And his tears turned out to be more powerful than the tears of Christine Blasey Ford, which were the tears of an alleged victim. But in America, there's a thing about both white vigilantism and white tears, particularly male white tears. Really white tears in general, because that's what Karens are, right? They Karen out, and then as soon as they get caught, it's like, <laughs> green waterworks. White men can get away with that too. And it has the same effect, even as the right tries to politicize the idea that masculinity is being robbed from American men by multiculturalism and wokeism. They still want to be able to have their tears. All right, Jason, do you agree with that assessment like that? Um, <clears throat> you know, so it, it's interesting, you know, number one, I, I'm going to be 100% transparent. I'm so sick of talking about Kyle Rittenhouse. 
I'm so ready for this trial to be over one way or the other. Um, but I will say this, uh, when it comes to Rittenhouse and his, his crying, um, I, I know that there were a lot of people who thought the tears were, were disingenuous. Uh, you know, I don't know. I, I can't gauge that. Comparing Rittenhouse to uh, uh, Brett Kavanaugh, I, I, I don't know that there's a strong comparison there. But when she's talking about the, the kind of Karen-y tears, that's a real thing without question, um, that people can be perpetrators. And then when they get called out, all of a sudden they get all kinds of Karen-y tears. That happens. And what we meaning, have seen- Meaning that they cry for sympathy? Yeah, they cry. All of a sudden they become the victim. Um, we've seen that several times. And the other thing that I would say is that there is- this kind of empathy that goes to young white men that doesn't go to young black men uh, or young brown men um, and young white women and older white women and you know that doesn't go to black and brown people, uh, it, particularly in the criminal justice system. So I was just reading this case earlier today uh, in the state of New York where this one boy He's a man now, but he was a boy at the time. He was, I believe, 17 years old. He raped four teenage girls. Doesn't really dispute it. You know, he raped four teenage girls. Mm. Uh, some of them were his sister's friends. Uh, in one case, he, um, he threw the girl on a bed, uh, just kind of lured her into a room, then threw her on the bed and took all her clothes off. And while she, you know, writhed and cried in pain, he told her to stop being a baby. Um, and yet the judge who said he prayed on it said that he didn't think jail time was appropriate and gave uh, this young man probation for raping four different girls. Um, it's hard for a lot of us, you know, and, and again, we've seen, I've, I've talked about the statistics of innocent black men versus innocent white men. Um, it's hard for a lot of us to sit there and say that the criminal justice system is fair and that everyone gets looked at the same and that everyone's tears are treated the same way when that happens. So the general overall point that I think she's making is that you know, black tears aren't respected the way that white tears are respected. Um, the empathy for young black people and young black teenagers, there's an actual, there's research out of Georgetown that, you know, if anyone is interested that they should look up, it's called adultification, where adultification bias, where adults of all backgrounds seem to think that black children are older and more threatening and less and for black girls, less uh, worthy of nurturing, know more about sex, uh, are more aggressive. All these kinds of things, starting for girls at age five and starting for boys at age 10. Um, black men are perceived to be bigger and more muscular than they, than they really are uh, because of these biases that we have in our heads, the way society nurtures us and socializes us. So it does get frustrating for a lot of black people to say, my tears 
in a courtroom are not respected the way someone else's tears are. So I, I understand the overall point that she's trying to make, but I disagree with putting uh, Kyle Rittenhouse in the same category as Brett Kavanaugh. I think that those are two different cases. And I'll be honest, if I'm Brett Kavanaugh, um, and this isn't saying anything about his innocence or guilt, I don't know. But if I'm Brett Kavanaugh and someone accuses me of sexual assault, I'm probably going to cry, you know, because I find that to be so deplorable and so disgusting. It's probably not a whole lot worse you could say about someone, a man, uh, than saying that he, he sexually assaulted somebody or attempted to sexually assault somebody. Yeah, he so, was fighting for his honor in one of the most in the most watched moment of his entire yeah, life. Right. And I'm not saying he's not guilty of it. I don't know. I have I have. Really, yeah. you know, I, and one of the things that you and I talked about is the FBI didn't really investigate it. So we'll never know. So but here, here's what here's my problem with the Joy Reid thing. Mm -hmm. So she she's laying it out as if their race makes their tears suspect. So it's like this is a strategy. This is a whole thing. White people do it all the time. They cry and then they get away with things. And it's like, what? First of all. That, that is just, it's such a bigoted way to assess this. And, I, and, that's, and that's how I truly feel about her assessment there. Um, it's just a completely bigoted way to assess it. I, I can't imagine personally, first of all, when I see somebody reacting emotionally to something, that sends a tremendous number of signals, doesn't it, to the human brain? It's like, if you see someone, it doesn't matter what their skin color is, if they're crying and they're expressing, and they're, and they're clearly, like you watch Kyle Rittenhouse on the stand, he can't speak, he was hyperventilating. And and this is a guy. If but you there were watch, no tears, so you, I, I think some people questioned the you know whether he was being coached, whether he was coached to react. Yeah, what's interesting though is like if he was, it's inconsistent with what was happening in the rest of the trial because even after he came back, he was very composed. Like he finally he found his composure again. Right. And when he was on the stand, he he maintained that composure. He was almost Vulcan like. He was like very stoic. He he his his testimony throughout was pretty even keeled. There wasn't a lot of emotionality attached to it. It was just that first moment where he was being pursued by Joseph Rosenbaum and was having to relive there on the stand that yeah. that series of events. I, I, I don't I don't have an opinion whether whether those tears are real or not. I, I don't know. Um, but I, I'll just tell you the other side of the argument that I've heard people say is he had no tears after he shot several people after he watched a man's bicep explode after, he, you know, he killed two people. He called someone was like, yeah, I think I just killed someone. And there, there was no, there were no tears when he was surrendering to the police, which is what he should do. Uh, there were no tears um, when, when the attack was actually happening. Uh, so, you know, for some people, I'm not saying, I'm just giving you the other side of it. I really, like I said, I'm kind of tired of the whole thing, but uh, you know, some people believe, well, the tears all of a sudden on the stand but they weren't there when you were going through this. They weren't through any other point that we saw publicly anyway. Um, some people were kind of questioning and they didn't see any, any physical tears. Um, but, you know, I, I'm like, not, look, you I'm, know I'm, veterans, for instance, Jason, who are on the battlefield, when they, and they, when they kill a man on the battlefield, mm -hmm. uh, you hear, you often, I mean, it's adrenaline, like their body's full of adrenaline because they're in, the most perilous moment of their life uh, as they're exchanging gunfire with an enemy they kill someone and then sometimes it's years down the road before their emotions finally catch up with them and you and you see this post-traumatic stress disorder and 
kind of just people having to relive these horrific moments in their life when they had to take somebody else's. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, there's some precedent for this, I think, yeah. just in terms of what what may have played out here. All yeah, I'm let, saying is, all I'm saying is, look. Let me just even, say one thing. Go ahead. I, I just want to say, I, I'm someone in that regard, I agree with you. Not just that example, but I think that people always think that there, there is an appropriate emotional response to a lot of things. Yeah. And I will say that, you know, an abnormal response to an abnormal circumstance is perfectly mm -hmm. normal. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I'm not necessarily judging that he didn't cry when he shot the guy or when the guy was pursuing him or at any other point. Um, some people felt that it was suspect that he picked that moment. Okay, to, so let me all of a sudden be there. So but I'm, I'm not. Let's stipulate no that then. Let's stipulate that then. Let's pretend for a moment that we know that he was faking it. Yeah, I don't. I don't. I don't, no, I know, but know just for, for the sake of argument, I'm just saying, let's, yeah. let's, let's pretend like that's what was happening. I do not know why Joy Reid needs to invoke race. I, I, I can't even begin to understand why that would be a sensible approach to this. And in fact, the example that she used of Brett Kavanaugh, he was like, why was his tears believed over her tears? And then she's talking about it being like white people. They're both white. Like the Christine Blasey Ford was white, you know, uh, and is white. And Brett Kavanaugh's a white guy. Like the whole the whole thing is a nonsensical argument that so, should have never been raised by somebody who has the power that she does. But I think and, you're missing and the, her and the platform point. that she does. I think you're missing her point. I, I I see what you're saying. Of course, all of the victims in these cases, whether it's Rittenhouse or whether it is um, Kavanaugh, the alleged victims. Um, all of them are white and the perpetrators all white everybody's white in these situations but the question that well number one with Kavanaugh she's also raising the issue of gender which is what I brought up when I was bringing up I don't know the race of the girls that were that were sexually assaulted by this uh by this boy or man now um but I'm assuming you know just because of the, the area that in, it was in Niagara County in New York, I'm assuming they were white. Um, and for some reason, even with, uh, what, what was it, Brett, Brock Turner or whatever, you know, I don't know the race of his victim, but it just seems as though, you know, with white men, they seem to get the benefit of the doubt a lot of times that a black man or a black woman does not get. For example, there, you know, there, I can give you several cases, but there have been cases like the woman who uh, voted by mistake um, after she had gotten out of prison. She thought she was eligible to vote and they put her back in prison. I'm sure she shed tears over that. She was like, I, I just, I thought I was eligible, but her tears were ignored. Um, a woman who moved to a different district so that her kid could go to a different school or, or uh, send her kid to a school in a different district and was uh, convicted of a crime there. I'm sure she shed tears, but her tears were ignored. So I think a lot of times what the point that Joy Reid, I hope and think that she's trying to make is that black people's tears are not accepted in a way that a lot of times a white man's tears are. And I don't know that those are the best examples that she used, uh, but the larger point that she's making, I think that there is some validity in it. We can debate it, but I think that there's a reason that she's bringing up race and gender 
there because, and I can show you, again, I can show you the statistics, you know, when we look at an innocent black man and an innocent white man. So I think there's a reason to bring up some of these issues, particularly, you know, when it comes to race in the criminal justice system. And one of the things that I point out is that Republicans believe this. They don't like to talk about things that are systemic. They don't like to talk about systemic racism, but you better believe they tried to use criminal justice reform as a selling point in the last election because they understand that there are race, there is racism in our systems. They just don't like to admit it and talk about it. Well, they understand at the very least that there are voters, especially black voters, who care tremendously about that issue. Uh, and and so as a result, pursued it. I mean, that was the thought that Trump had, that maybe he could increase black support for him. So he, he did didn't really believe it? By some it? small margin. I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, saying, I was just saying that since 2016 to 2020, he did increase the percentage of black support for him by a small margin, but it wasn't seismic no. at all. It wasn't enough to win, win re-election. Sure. Uh, and, and, but it was one of those things where he looked at it and said, okay, here's a segment of voters who care a lot about this issue, so I'll pursue it. That's, at least that's my, that's my sense of it. Yeah, so he, he, you're, you're saying that he genuinely didn't believe in criminal justice reform, that this was just transactional? I don't know. I don't know what he believed. But my suspicion is that he saw that there was a segment of voters who cared a lot about it. So he thought, OK, I'm going to pursue that because I'd like their vote. Yeah, I, I well, I think that's in some ways kind of a dangerous way to govern. But I do see, you know, if that's if I can accept that, um, I think Trump does do a lot of things transactionally rather than based on uh, principles and. Yeah, well, and, hell, and, I'd wish more people, I wish more people who, who occupied political office actually did things to pursue our votes. <laughs> like, Yes, uh, but I also, I also like for my politicians to have some convictions and, and, and morals. And, and, I, and I, for me, you know, I think that there are things, you know, that societies have grown to believe. I mean, this is, this is for example, you know, I, I always talk about the civil rights movement. There were a lot of politicians in the South, Orville Faubus of Arkansas. One of the things about him, and I'll just make this final point. Um, he was someone who the black community had supported before the Little Rock Nine uh, incident. He, he was somebody who they supported, but he faced a tough reelection. And he knew from a political standpoint, he needed the segregationist vote to win. Instead of standing on principle, mm -hmm. he all of a sudden became the fiercest segregationist mm -hmm. because he wanted votes. So that's why I like guys who, who stand on principle. Now, on the other side, there was a mayor from Nashville whose name is escaping me. And some civil rights activists approached him in Nashville. One of them, uh, I believe, was John Lewis, if I'm not mistaken, but certainly Diane Nash. And they said, do you think that it's fair that a man not be allowed or a man or a woman not be allowed to uh, enjoy the same privileges that another man does based on his skin color. Mm -hmm. And despite the fact that it was unpopular, he said, we're going to desegregate these restaurants because, you know, I'm a Christian and, and I believe that, you know, we're all God's children. And, right. you know, that's the principle that I'm going to stand on, even if it's unpopular here in Nashville, Tennessee. So to me, I think there are times when politicians have to stand on principle, That's even true. if, you know, the, the public seems to think or the majority of the public thinks 
in a different way. It probably also depends on like what the scale of the, like how crystal clear the, um, the morals are in question. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So like, you know, segregation and, and Jim Crow laws, like, you know, especially with the benefit of hindsight, you and I can look at that and say, man, you know, it's crystal clear. At the time, I'm sure people were putting themselves through all sorts of justifications to explain it away. Uh, and they were historically, that's true. Um, including arguments like, oh, segregation, like both sides prefer it. You know what I mean? Like that's yeah. kind of kind of as a way to, to justify it. Um, but then like, you know, it's like, and then there's some areas where it's like, okay, decreasing the length of prison sentences. Is that quite as cut and dry as uh, segregation? No, it's not quite as cut and dry, but it does matter that a healthy percentage of the country would really like to see that change. And so as a result, like a responsible politician takes that into consideration and decides whether or not they want to support it. Trump did. And, uh, and so did some Democrats. They came, to, came together and they created the criminal justice reform package. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think one of the things that, you know, getting back to Joy Reid, I think one of the the questions she would say, uh, I don't know. And if Joy Reid would would come on our show, we would love to interview her and and have this conversation with her. But I'll say this, you know, on average or not on average, uh, it it is there's a statistic that I actually recently read that says um, all things controlled and all things uh, considered that white black men on average get 20% longer prison sentences than white men um, for, for the, the same, same crime. crime. Uh, 20% is a long time. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. that's a, that's a, that's a decent chunk of time uh, that people are getting for the exact same crime. So again, somebody's crying in that courtroom, but I have a, I bet you both men are crying in that courtroom. But, but when you, when you invoke a statistic like that, and I know, and I kind of actually, I kind of, I think I even know what you're going to say to this, but it just, here's my, my, my question instantly becomes, okay, let's, obviously you want to drill down on that data to get a sense of what it really means. And then fundamentally, will we be able to detect a class discrepancy within that data? Like, so does it matter how much, yeah. how, how poor you are to this data? Now, if you were to take that down a logical train, and I imagine this is how I imagine Dr. Jason Nichols might respond. It's that. Sure, you actually probably could detect a class discrepancy, but that class discrepancy very clearly is drawn along racial lines as well. And the, and the reason that that poverty exists is because of uh, racial discrimination and the legacy of that. And thus, that's where we achieve these outcomes. Do I have that right? I think that's mostly right. Uh, but I also would say that just quite plainly, that when we look at uh, discrimination, I was looking at some statistics in healthcare, in discrimination in healthcare, that Black uh, people are less likely to, uh, or, or more likely to get cheaper, less effective treatment uh, for ailments, particularly heart, you know, cardiovascular ailments, mm-hmm. than, than white folks. And they control for income, class, all of those uh, uh, factors. So this idea that, well, it's all about class, it just doesn't bear out in a lot of data when we're talking about uh, race. A lot of times, a lot of these experience, uh, experiments that social scientists do, they know to control for class uh, and for mm-hmm. income. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a perception. You know, I, I think in many cases, if you are, and I are in a room, and I, and I think that there's, you know, there's a decent basis for this based on what you just said. If you and I are in a room, you know, 
and they said, who's got the PhD? You know, I bet you a lot of people are going to point at Vince Collins or, you know, uh, if it's like, who's, who's the wealthier of the two, mm-hmm. you know, um, I bet a lot of people and we're, we're in, you know, wearing our black shirt since it's black shirt. Day. Yes. To conceal um, our wealth. <laughs> right. you can't you can't make any decision i'm not wearing my monocle so you can't assume <laughs> that i'm mr uh, mr Moneybags. right right uh yeah so i you know again we're two we're two middle class guys mm-hmm. um but i think that there's you know there will probably be the perception even though i'm a middle class guy that you know i'm probably poor maybe i'm you know Maybe there are other perceptions about me. Yeah. You know, as I said, the perception of, you know, black men being more aggressive, more violent, bigger, stronger, all these kinds of things, you know, those come into play. And imagine that we're in front of a judge Uh and in front of a jury, you know, Um, I think there's a certain amount of empathy that will go to Vince Colonnese's tears instead of to my tears. When I say I have a family, that would never happen. I've never cried in my life, but that's I understand the example you're trying to make. Yeah. Well, God forbid I ever end up in front of a judge. (laughs) I'm going to do whatever. I'm going to cry. You know, I'm not mad at it. That's another thing. You know, I'm going to just keep it a a buck here. You know, I'm going to keep it 1000. If those tears or lack thereof of, uh, of don't say it, Kyle Rittenhouse were fake i don't blame them <laughs> like, yo, don't say this stuff jason no this is gonna come back and it's gonna haunt you in your trial for speeding 15 miles over they're, they're gonna they're gonna pull you in front of the courtroom they're like jason nichols were you speeding 15 miles per hour be honest right now in front of this jury oh, <laughs> oh 15 miles i can't talk i, I can't talk <laughs> i was I, I, I could talk. I got, I got, I got a calf. I got a calf cramp, and and that's a what calf cramp. Oh <laughs> but, man. Yeah, but I, hey, I don't blame. I don't blame you if you think crying is effective in the courtroom. That's funny because that's your life, and you know, of course, you know, Kyle Rittenhouse's life is on the line here. Yeah, yeah, no, it definitely is, man. I can't believe it stretches on for yet another day. More great clips and more great conversation ahead. But first, Vincent Jason Save the Nation is brought to you by Goldco. All right, for our next trick, we're going to cover Bill Maher <laughs> on uh, CNN. He was on with uh, Christopher Cuomo back in the studio, the two of them face-to-face. And uh, Bill Maher, the HBO host, uh, had some uh, words for the corporate press. Let's take a look. Well, you said we made ourselves sick. The bigger issue that is never discussed is that we were sick. You know, before you get sick, you are sick. This is a very sick country, still is. I don't mean mentally, although that too, but physically. And why don't, why don't you talk about that? I mean, there is, let's say, let's call it factor X. If there was a factor that was responsible for 78% of the COVID deaths and hospitalizations, wouldn't you have to really journalistically report that? The comorbidities. I'm talking about obesity. Mm-hmm. People in the media, people in the government are afraid to even mention it. Again, 78%, 88% of worldwide deaths are in high obesity countries. 40% of COVID deaths are people with diabetes. And yet, no one will mention it. I do, but yeah, they, hate, we, they hate me for I it. I talk about it, but you're right. It's not the prevailing it's, narrative. It's, you cannot p- 
People have got to participate in their health. I said this before the pandemic. I said, we will never get health care right in this country. I don't care if you take Bernie Sanders' health care plan, Elizabeth Warren's health care plan, Joe Biden's. It, nothing is going to work, and it wasn't working, unless people understand that they have some skin in the game. They have to participate in their own health. You can't expect just vaccines and pills or whatever else they have to do the job. And we never do that in this country. The last person who tried was Michelle Obama. And it did not go over well. Now, I have not seen that. I've seen a bunch of clips mm. from this interview. That I was interesting. Seen, I hadn't yeah. seen that clip. And I just realized that I violently agree with Bill Maher on this subject. All right. So I, I agree with him absolutely um, about if, if obesity is under your control. And I think mental health is important, too, because what I've seen in my life, uh, a lot of people who are morbidly obese, it's also, it's really immense starts here. Everything really starts here up in your head. And, uh, you know, people with, who suffer from depression, PTSD, mm -hmm. uh, all those kinds of things, they are oftentimes the people who become morbidly obese. A, a person who is functioning and happy and in a good place in life does not become morbidly obese generally. You know, that, that just doesn't happen. It's not just, hey, I like food. No, you are using food as some sort of drug uh, and some sort of mask, just the way someone uses cocaine or alcohol or heroin yeah. or anything like that. But I don't um, even think morbid obesity is required for COVID to kill you. I think simple obesity uh, plays a big role here. And so, you know, there's been a lot of excuse making for fatness that has crept into our culture, right? So like yeah. a, a, we've what we've done is we we overtacked, right? Because it used to be that we were like pretty judgmental about it. Remember the uh, what was what was that show where they like they put like fat people on the show, like really morbidly obese people, and then they run they they revolutionize their lives. And they've got these really slender, you know, in shape fitness instructors who are giving them the advice. Biggest loser. Biggest loser, right? And was and one of the loser. women on that show, she got in trouble for um for talking about uh, some celebrity's fatness and how fat she was and how unhealthy it was. And stop with the like the whole body body positivity thing. Um, God, what's her name? The uh, the uh, the uh, is it Jillian Michaels? Yeah, Jillian Michaels. Thank you. See, look at you. You're like. You're like, this is why you're a doctor, Dr. Jason Nichols. Um, and uh, and she had said something. Okay, now fill my fill fill this in for me. She had said something about um, big black woman singer uh, who uh, Lizzo. Lizzo, yes, Aim dude, you're killing it today, hundred percent. All right. So she was talking about how unhealthy it is. She was just like, that's I don't know what we're doing. Basically, that's like completely unhealthy. And somebody should say it out loud. And then Jillian Michaels just got destroyed for for daring to say that. But don't you think like we've completely overtacked as a culture? We went from like a culture where we were like, okay, it was okay to be judgmental to one where we're like, don't judge at all. Like don't have, and it's so, it's not healthy for people. When you tell them, when we, like you generate this quote, body positivity movement, you're basically saying, making excuses for, for unhealthiness that actually have really dire impacts on people's lives. It's not, it's not good. You're enabling uh, terrible outcomes for people. You shouldn't do that. So I, I kind of disagree with that. And that is because this whole, uh, the old judgmental way is what led to girls in my high school 
but becoming anorexic and becoming bulimic and doing all kinds of things that were really dangerous to their health. Uh, I, I can't tell you how many, I mean, there, there had to be dozens where I went to school where there were girls who would be, you know, not eating or just mm -hmm, eating mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, lettuce, you know what I mean? That would be their only meal of the day because they were so concerned about being skinny. Um, so I think that that has actually caused a whole lot of problems for a lot of young girls and led them into a lifetime of eating disorders. Okay. Yeah, but there's a purge. middle ground. But there's a um, middle ground, Jason, right? But we I mean, don't have to, we don't have to judge. Like, why is it that we're judging people's appearance? Like, now, is it okay if you are a family member or something for you to say, hey, you know, um, you know, did you go get a physical? I'm a little worried. How about you know? this? How about this? Better yet, and what Bill Maher's talking about is the media should be forthcoming about the truth about COVID. Just say, just say it all the time. Like there's all this stuff about like, you remember like the wear a mask thing and get vaccinated and do it for your friends and your neighbors, right? The messages that the media has constantly been yeah. sending out. Here's one that they don't send out. Obesity is one of the number one indicators of whether or not you'll have a severe outcome. Obesity. They don't do that routinely. They don't talk about it that often because, because you're not allowed to, I guess, suggest that anything is within the control of that, of that individual, or at least anything that would take meaningful, substantial work. Like getting a vaccine, yeah, you can go to the store, you can get the shot. That's like a one second solution. But losing weight, that could have real benefits for vaccinated people and unvaccinated people. And it's okay to say it out loud and it's okay to do it in a, in a way that's not, hyper judgmental, right? Or not condemning people who are fat. Just being like, hey, it's worth remembering. If you really want to stop COVID, if you really want to make sure that you're protected against uh, infection and severe outcomes, not just for COVID, but for so many other things, you got to get control of your weight. It's yeah, I, I feel like we've been yourself. having that conversation a whole lot in our society. You know, I, I have discussions with people who talk about, well, you got to go plant-based or you got to go this, you uh -huh. know, yeah, yeah. or, uh, you know, obesity is, is really um, bad and threatening for your health. I, I have those conversations all the time. I hear those conversations all the time. So I don't think that that's something that's been. Do you see it in the press though? I mean, the, the, the what Bill Maher is saying the, is that it's not been a, uh, what the corporate media has talked about. Yeah, in, the in the context of COVID, no, because we were thinking there, there's a short term and a long term. Right. And I think that the short term are how do we keep people from dying? You know what I mean? Of course, we will talk about it long term. You know, uh, control your asthma, can, you know, get medi medicated for things that you, you know, the comorbidities, mm -hmm. avoid comorbidities like obesity, you know, that can lead to diabetes and make you even more susceptible to hospitalization or death. Those are absolutely things that we need to talk about. There's also some societal things that I don't think we've been talking about is, um, you know, with regard to some respiratory issues. A lot of that comes from uh, poor housing. You know yep. what I mean? Mm -hmm. if, you, if you've got like uh, mold in a house and, and things that, that you find in a lot of poor housing for poorer people, um, that's going to make things worse. So there are a whole lot of structural things that we need to talk about, including obesity, yeah. you know, housing, all but those as things. Bill that, says, air as Bill, pollution, all those things need to be on the table, but, but that's, that's long-term. That's true, but you know, Bill Maher points short -term, it out. 
Bill Maher points it out. It's number one. I mean, just the, the number one single biggest comorbidity that you could have that indicates that you are more likely to die from COVID, obesity. Yeah, no, I, I think it's it's absolutely an issue. But how do we avoid, you know, I can tell you to lose weight over the next year, you know, and I don't know if you watched Will Smith had a show uh, getting in the best shape of my life or something like that. Uh-huh. And he was trying to lose for for 50 year old man, which he's a man too. it's even harder for women. His goal was to lose one pound a week over mm-hmm. 20 weeks and mm-hmm. lose 20 pounds. And that's incredibly hard. <laughs> like what you found, he was doing two a days. He was running five Ks. He was lifting weights. He had a trainer. He had a, you know, obviously somebody cooking his meals. Sure. Uh, and it was still really hard to lose one pound a week. So over 20 weeks, you could certainly catch COVID while you're trying to lose that weight. That's mm-hmm. a long-term project. Yeah. You know, and a lot of people are a lot more than 20 pounds overweight. Um, now, in terms of body positivity, I just think we shouldn't judge people for employment, you know, in most cases, unless your employment involves fitness, we shouldn't judge people based on their appearance. Um, and we need to take into account that there are reasons that people can be obese. That yeah, that's true. That's can, true. Can de- come, come from other issues. You may have a gland issue or a thyroid issue. Or- I know, but it seems like everybody, it, like all of a sudden it became like, oh, everybody's got an excuse. You know what I mean? Like, like, like that's not, and that's not true. There are plenty of, don't, I, I don't exploit other people's medical conditions to be lazy. <laughs> like, yeah, just I- like, like just get control of your life because it's good for you and it's good for your family. It's a good, it, this is, this is a positive thing. Yeah, there are a lot of fit people who are not in control of their lives. <laughs> you know what I mean? I totally. Think I- control of your life manifests in different ways. Um, you know, I, I just think that it's it's really hard to look at somebody and say, but hey, you're out of control. All right. Well, let me tell you, let me tell you a story about COVID today, though. Sure. So this is a crazy story. The Associated Press has this up just this morning. Scientists mystified and wary as Africa avoids COVID disaster. Have you heard about this? So in Africa, COVID rates have fallen off the face of the planet. Now, Africa, as you might imagine, has spotty reporting. It's not as uh, robust in terms of its reporting, but they say that it's so down that even with the reporting problems that exist in Africa, they say that uh, COVID is just just disappearing. They say fewer than 6% of people across the continent are even vaccinated, fewer than 6%. And yet Africa at this moment is one of the least affected regions in the entire planet when it comes to COVID. Now, just because we're talking about this, I was like, you know what, let me look up the obesity rates for um, for the continent of Africa and then for North America. So I'll start with North America, obesity. Uh, roughly two out of three US adults are overweight or obese. One out of three are obese. 36%. That's uh, according to just a quick Google search and uh, Harvard says that. So two thirds of American adults are overweight or obese. That's a huge deal. All right. So meanwhile, in Africa, 18.4% of women, it's less than a fifth and 7.8% of men, less than a 10th of Africa is obese. So, okay, right there, that one, that's one of the indicators that explains something in a big way. The other is that life expectancy is dramatically lower in Africa. The average, did you know this? I did not know this. The average age of somebody who lives in Africa is 20. 
The average age of a person who lives in Africa is 20 years old. Meanwhile, in Western Europe, according to the Associated Press, the average age, 43. Uh, and so that gets to the two biggest factors, obesity and age. Those are the two biggest in terms of uh, the severe outcomes for, for COVID. So kind of fascinating. Uh, so I, I think there's even more that goes into, um, into Africa and COVID. Number one, as we said, they're, they're not necessarily on top of the world in terms of testing. Mm -hmm. um, so we don't know how, you know, their COVID rates um, as opposed to a lot of other places um, because of the fact that their testing isn't quite as robust as it is in, in Western Europe or in the United States or probably even in certain parts of Asia. Um, the other thing, um, so I have a family member who actually was, was living in Africa uh, and just, just got back to the United States. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that he was saying is there are a lot of factors. Number one, he was, he was in Zimbabwe and in Zimbabwe, um, there is, you know, moderately good testing and they've also done lockdowns. They've done quite a few lockdowns. Now, South Africa, on the other hand, the other thing is people in Zimbabwe are spaced out and work outdoors a lot of times. So their homes are a little more spaced out it's not urban sprawl the way Plenty it is in South flow. Africa, right? Mm -hmm. You know, so where it is, you know, in South Africa, where you're probably a lot of people work in office buildings and, you know, it's yeah. urban and you live in a big apartment building and you're in an elevator, you know, elevator with people every day. Uh, that's not the case in Zimbabwe. So I think for a lot of parts of Africa, it's just the landscape and the economy that makes it conducive to avoiding, you know, massive COVID spread. There's one other, there's one other health issue that plays a role here, apparently. On Friday, that's today, researchers working in Uganda have just reported that they found that COVID-19 patients with high rates of exposure to malaria were less likely to suffer severe disease or death. Kind of fascinating. They said they went into the project thinking they would see a higher rate of negative outcomes in people who had a history of malaria infections because that's what they had seen in people who had both malaria and Ebola in the past. And it turns out, they say, quote, we were actually quite surprised to see the opposite, that malaria may have had a protective effect against COVID. What a, what a strange outcome that is, uh, but that it may yeah. be playing a role in uh, I'd wanna Uganda. See, yeah, I wanna see the, the results of that study and by Ugandan scientists. So I, I you know, not, nothing against Uganda. Um, <laughs> What do you have against you know, Uganda? I have nothing. <laughs> I have nothing against Uganda. As a matter of fact, an organization that I uh, continue to work with uh -huh. uh, does a whole lot of work in Uganda and travels back and forth to Uganda. Um, I have, you know, Ugandan friends. I have lots of love for Uganda. Um, but you have a judgment about Uganda, though. I'm waiting for it. What is your judgment? No, my 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 judgment is my judgment is about all of these scientific studies that say one thing and then we find out it's not necessarily true mm -hmm. because uh, of the rigor of the experiment. Um, and I also think that in the United States, we have certain biases against certain science scientists, depending on where they're from. Um, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not a scientist, so I don't really have this, but if you had research, you know, from France, I guarantee you that, you know, the scientists at the University of Maryland would say, hey, this is probably legitimate. 
you know, if it was if it was published in a French medical journal, it's coming out of Uganda and published in a Ugandan uh, mm -hmm. medical mm -hmm. journal. I would bet that they would be like, we really need to comb through this and make sure that it's. So you legit. think there's like some first world country bias? Yeah, I think there's probably that. Um, mm -hmm. But I, but I also, you know, and and what kind of resources are they are available to scientists right. in Uganda? That, well, that AP, those would be some of the questions. The AP is taking it seriously. That's all I'm saying. It's, it's in this Associated Press report that this that these uh, that Jane uh, Aiken, a senior researcher advisor at the Malaria Consortium and a co-author of the study says that uh, she was very surprised to see that malaria may have had a protective effect with COVID-19. So I'm going to say something that I, I hopefully won't get a shadow banned. <laughs> um, if that is true, isn't hydroxychloroquine an anti-malarial drug? Yes. And wouldn't that kind of lend some credence to the idea that perhaps it's effective. It might, now, again, or that, that's or, probably BS. Let me just say, no, 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 <laughs> but let me, but let I'm me making all these this. specious leaps here. No, Jason, you're not entirely because that's one of the things that, um, that led to this belief that hydroxychloroquine was protective was because of what was going on in Africa. They're like, wait a second. Basically people who had been taking hydroxychloroquine prophylactically in, in, as a preventative against malaria seem to be having better outcomes. But I, this is only based on this coverage this morning that I'm having this thought. What if hydroxychloroquine was wrongly being given the credit for what right. malaria had accomplished? Right. That's so, that's actually uh, that makes perfect sense to me. Now and, I don't and, know. I don't know what the answer is. Again, I'll stipulate. But it is kind of fascinating, and and it makes you wonder what's happening here. So let me let me also say this. Um, you know, of course, our former president Donald Trump had talked about using hydroxychloroquine prophylactically. Yeah. yeah. And then he ended up getting COVID. Mm -hmm. But we all know Donald Trump is obese. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And so obesity, and he ended up getting hospitalized. So, of course, his age is also a factor in that. But, you know, um, when we're talking about obesity, if everyone here is agreeing with Bill Maher, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. then perhaps, you know, what you're saying is that the former president, Donald Trump, mm -hmm. needs to get his life in order. For his own benefit? Yeah. I mean, if it, the, he'll live more years if he can cut a few LBs. Definitely. Yeah. So I, I'm, if, I, I know you're willing to admit that, but there are a lot of people who are like, no, Donald Trump is our king. God the father, God the son, Donald <laughs> Trump. Who says that? That's you pretty know? funny. Uh, <laughs> you know, so, I mean, if, if they believe that, you know, just just realize that if you're saying, hey, fat people are just, you know, lost control of their lives and they don't know what they're doing and they need to get on a treadmill. You need to say that to your to your president or to your former president, because your president is Joe Biden. <laughs> just, like I get, yeah, if you want to. I mean, yeah, I don't think that like, you know, McDonald's cheeseburgers and Diet Cokes are probably the best diet, <laughs> but like. You know. Oh, you're going to get canceled by the right, Vince. <laughs> really? <laughs> I don't know. I didn't know they liked him for his diet. I just, yeah. but, don't worry. Anyway. The right or the left, neither one is watching the show as, as <laughs> uh, you know, our YouTube. Oh, good. Show. I'm glad to see it, though. Jason Nichols, thank you as always, man. It's good to spend some time with you. 
Absolutely. As, as we work through the issues. I appreciate that. And if you uh, would like to watch Jason and I do this on a frequent basis, you should do that by subscribing to the podcast anywhere you can find it, Vincent Jason Save the Nation, as well as like, subscribe, comment, and share on both Facebook Watch and YouTube to make sure a huge audience gets to see this thing uh, because they deserve it. America definitely deserves it. Thank you, Jason. <laughs> Thank you.